I'm Jen Zobel. I'm Katrin Redfern. I'm Matt Fiddler. And I'm Ann Poston. And you're listening to Play for Voices. 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 Welcome to Play for Voices, the podcast of international audio drama where we produce English language plays and plays in English translation. On this episode, we're proud to present Illegal Helpers, a documentary play by German-Italian playwright Maxi Obexer in Neil Blackadder's English translation and arranged for radio by Play for Voices. Illegal Helpers was recorded before a live audience at the Czech Center New York as part of an event called Freedom and Movement, which was held in November 2018 to commemorate the anniversary of the Velvet Revolution. Illegal Helpers premiered in Salzburg in 2016 and was named one of the winners of the 2016 German-language Eurodrom Prize. The play explores the current refugee crisis in Europe through the eyes of ordinary citizens. The play is based on verbatim interviews, which the playwright conducted with Swiss, Austrian, and German residents from all walks of life, doctors, judges, social workers, activists, and students, who took it upon themselves to help refugees seeking a new life in Europe. Some of these helpers broke the law and have been charged with providing aid to illegal immigrants, and others could still be subject to legal action at any time. In this documentary work, we hear the voices of those expressing their objections to national laws they find xenophobic and unjust. They recount their struggles with judges and state officials who either go out of their way to deport refugees or don't use their discretion to apply the law in the refugees' favor. Some helpers smuggled migrants across borders. Several provided legal counsel. One sheltered young refugees. Another married an asylum seeker to provide him with legal status, and another assisted refugees in tense encounters with German bureaucrats. The helper's stories told here are interrupted by an impersonal legislator who reads out official statutes regulating the movement and treatment of refugees. Through this juxtaposition, the play questions the justness of a society that criminalizes humanitarian actions. The play opens with the words of Michael Genner, a well-known Austrian activist who represents asylum seekers. The helper's actions, while criminalized by the Dublin regulation, exemplify what German speakers call civil courage, the courage of one's convictions, practiced in informal groups rather than by extraordinary personalities. By showing that networks of ordinary people willing to help are already present, if often invisible, throughout society and the state, the play stresses that extraordinary acts or heroes aren't necessary. It affirms the aggregate power of small acts of conscientious persistence. Illegal Helpers opposes the hero cult propagated by conservative nationalists and leftist activists alike. And now... Illegal Helpers. Civil courage is more important than ever. 
because deportations can be prevented. If an asylum seeker has applied for asylum, and if he's threatened with deportation, and goes underground and he doesn't show up anywhere for 18 months, then the Dublin regulation ceases to apply to him. But 18 months is a long time. Where's he supposed to go? The civilian population has the obligation to provide sheltered places in which those in need of protection and individuals who've been traumatized or tortured and therefore deserve protection can go into hiding for the 18 months that passed. Until then, they have to stay somewhere. And there are, in fact, people who will help out of goodwill. Private individuals, monasteries, churches, farms, there are lots of them. Those people, traffickers, who are honest, who do good work, who safely lead their customers out of a country of misery and hunger, of terror and persecution, and get them safely, in spite of border controls, into our free Europe. I have respect for all such people. They provide a service, they carry out a socially useful activity, and they have a right to a commensurate honorarium. I was spending some time with my kids in the mountains and my friend Jonas's. He farms a forest and several fields in the southernmost foothills of the Swiss Alps in Ticino, right on the Italian border. We help with the milking. We make cheese, make hay. And that spring, around Easter, we were making improvements to the narrow path that leads from the mountains into the valley. We were dragging these big granite rocks from the bed of a nearby stream up to the path and building a retaining wall in a sharp curve. It was a cool morning. And then suddenly the two sheepdogs started up. A tall, burly man, maybe mid-twenties, came down the footpath, leaning on two sticks, walking slowly, taking each step uncertainly looking exhausted and as if he was struggling to keep his balance. He spoke to us quite happily, in English we could barely understand. He was beaming, and he asked if this was Switzerland. We told him it was. The man was grateful. In fact, he was thrilled. Switzerland! It was a dream come true, and next he asked us whether, if he followed the path into the valley, he'd come to a village. Yes, we said. I could feel how pleased it made me to be able to help him in this way. He said all sorts of blessings. God bless you, he said in English. And I think he took my hand in his. I think he touched my head. Yes, he was really pleased. He was beaming. He hugged us. Switzerland, he kept saying. That's the way to the village, we told him. Yes. We may well have sent him straight to his own ruin, because down in the village, the neighbors watch over the street, terrified of refugees. That path used to be the main route for the smugglers and refugees. The people in the village were so afraid that they felt it necessary to put bars on the first floor windows and to equip themselves with shotguns. One time, there was a neighbor who used to travel around the world on board ships. He came back home late one night. When he opened the door, 
He found himself looking down the barrel of a loaded gun his wife was pointing right at his face. She assumed it was foreigners trying to get in through the door. Those neighbors were probably the first ones to report him to the authorities. In Chiasso, there's a reception camp. After he'd gone, it suddenly went through me like an electric shock. We could have kept him there in the mountains. Should have protected him. We should have let him rest for three days. Wrapped him up in blankets, killed the chicken, and made soup for him. Studied those incredibly detailed Swiss snaps with him. And called my aunt, Yorike, who's been helping refugees for more than 20 years. But if he had had a chance, the three days wouldn't have amounted to illegal conduct, would they? We could have simply helped him. Wasn't that a failure to assist a person in danger? Don't we also have duties towards these people? Why did I surrender him to the authorities when I know they aren't on his side, just as I'm not on their side? Why did I watch him walk away? Was I afraid? Afraid of the laws? Did the laws retain me? Did they make me hesitate? Laws that are not my laws, that punish me for providing aid? Council Directive defining the facilitation of unauthorized entry, transit, and residence. One, one of the objectives of the European Union is the gradual creation of an area of freedom, security, and justice, which means inter alia that illegal immigration must be combated. The Council of the European Union has adopted this directive. Article one, general infringement. Each member state shall adopt appropriate sanctions on any person who intentionally assists a person who is not a national of a member state to enter or transit across the territory of a member state in breach of the laws of the state concerned with the entry or transit of aliens. Each member state shall take the necessary measures to ensure that the sanctions referred to in Article 1 are also applicable to any person who A. is the instigator of, B. is an accomplice in, or C. attempts to commit an infringement as referred to in Article 1, Sections A or B. Article 3. Sanctions. Each member state shall take the necessary measures to ensure that the infringements referred to in Articles 1 and 2 are subject to effective, proportionate, and dissuasive sanctions. Maybe I should start by going in order. The very first one was from Bangladesh, Mamoon, a young man who just turned 16. The second young man, Tarek, was an Afghan. He finished his undergraduate degree. Then there was a third one. He was an Eritrean from an ethnic group that was persecuted. He was a serious athlete who actually made good money from it. Well, back then, that was Dehab. All three of them had traveled on their own. Then, through Dehab, there was his friend, Salim. He came too. 
the fifth person was the Afghani's partner, Malika. And that was basically how it started. Could say it was just that we liked them. I found them appealing. <laughs> A bit lost, like Mamoon, the boy. He was almost still a child. And they all became important stories, and they still are. They've really changed our lives. Now, back then, it was all about the hard struggles to get residence permits. We really found out what it's like behind the scenes of the political situation regarding asylum. How much of it comes down to luck and how powerless you really are. So, Mamon, the Bangladeshi, he'd finished the ninth grade. And before that, a year to prepare him for the ninth grade. Then the ninth grade, then the entrance exam for the vocational school for carpentry. And it was after the first year of doing that, and he'd become really integrated and settled in. That was when the negative ruling came. And then, he went into hiding. Now, he's in good hands. But I better not say too much about that. It did often become dangerous, whether we liked it or not. We had to be flexible with the truth. Yes. For instance, a question that comes up quite a lot is, where you're from? And if you say, I came to Switzerland from Italy, then you'll be expelled to Italy. Because that was the first country you arrived in. So, you can't say, I came from Italy. You have to say, from some country in Europe. I don't know where exactly. My husband and I were always in agreement about where and how we wanted to help. And these relationships have led to a kind of adopted family for us. Is that still the case today? The man broke down when he heard which country he was going to be deported to. Then everything went really fast. Within seconds, we decided we had to get him out of the country. For a moment, nobody spoke. Who's going to do it? I'll do it, I said. It took less than half an hour to organize everything. A car, a middleman who would meet us over there and hand the guy over to people who'd look after him. Not even an hour had gone by, and there I was, sitting in the car with him next to me. We had to make it over the border by 7.30 in the evening, by then, the search would have been started, his picture and all his info sent via computer. I didn't really feel afraid. I just needed to turn my head to the right to see who was afraid. I think because I had to worry about him, 
I myself wasn't scared. And then we were on the other side. In the railroad station where we'd agreed to meet, the middleman texted me to say I should move further away from the guy. I moved back a yard or so. He was really anxious. Because neither of us knew what sort of people we were handing him over to. I got another text. I was still too close to him. I should move away, which I then did. I watched as he approached the guy, exchanged a few words with him. Then they went off together. Later, I found out that they had advised him to sand off his fingertips so he couldn't be identified. When he couldn't do that himself, they did it for him. I asked myself, what was more horrible, being deported to wherever or filing off your own fingertips? What does it mean to no longer have anything on you that proves that you're you? Was it worth that? Someone eliminating the last traces of his identity? What price had been paid for that rescue? Wasn't that price too high? Would I have made the trip if I had known that beforehand? At some point, I had to recognize that I couldn't do that again. Even if it was, perhaps, the right thing to do. They talked down to them, shout at them. They tell them what to do, they open their letters. I felt ashamed that some clown at the immigration office who could care less about all of it, including the most personal things about these people, gets away with doing whatever he feels like and nobody reacts. I'd have liked to go to the police, but of course they wouldn't have done anything either. If my girlfriend hadn't said, carry on, keep at it, I know you, you'll only make yourself unhappy if you stop, I would have turned my back on it all. You've got one foot in criminal activity. That's the only way you can help. I told the people at the Department of Children and Family Services, if something happens to the boy now, it will be entirely your fault. The department's fault, but also yours, personally. The boy wasn't even 15, but the DCFS estimated his age as 18, which meant the child protection law didn't apply, and so he could be deported. His parents had been chopped to pieces in an attack. He fled to Greece, where he experienced some terrible things, and he made his way to Germany, where he has an uncle. But Dublin, too, required that he be transported back to Greece. So, that's when you have to get imaginative. The boy said that if he had to go back to Greece, there was no point to it anymore. For me, that was the key. Listen, people, the boy's at risk of suicide. I said that so many times that it led to panic in the DCFS. They handed the boy over to me, and I brought him to a department of children's psychiatry, where there was a doctor I could trust. He kept him there for six weeks, and during those six weeks, I had time to explore all the possibilities, political contacts, lots of good people. 
You have to make a lot of phone calls. In the case of that young man, the decision was made after eight weeks that he could stay here. And that was the first time Germany had approved a request submitted by someone representing themselves. The first such case. According to Dublin II, every country can do that, can decide. Fine, he can stay. We take it pretty far, yes. We expect a lot of ourselves and we take big risks. Every time I save one of them from deportation or help them obtain a residence permit, I could lose my status as a state employee and be without a job the next day. But I know myself, and I know that you have to fight and take action. You don't accomplish anything just by talking. People disappear in administrative detention, and we don't know anything about it. We only find out if someone comes to us and says, my brother was taken away. So we go to the prison, we obtain the power of attorney, and then we represent them. I advise and represent asylum seekers through the procedure for being granted asylum. It also sometimes happened that we brought someone back someone who was in the process of being deported. Not long ago, there was a Chechen, a man who had been tortured, and he came back again after the colonel had to reverse the decision. He was allowed back into asylum process, and the deportation was declared illegal. Now we're also going to file for compensation for wrongful imprisonment. I've been politically active since I was 17. I was involved in the student movement of 1968. I was part of the youth organization called Spartacus that led the struggle against homes and reformatories. I come from a family that was politically active during the Nazi era and that were persecuted on racial grounds. And that certainly had an influence on me. The work I'm doing now is the most important part of the political life that I've led. During the Second World War, right after the decision to implement the final solution for the Jews, there was a Portuguese diplomat in Warsaw started issuing visas for Jews to travel to Portugal, as many as he could. And even when he received instructions from Portugal not to issue any more visas, he didn't stop scrawling his signature and banging the stamp of the Portuguese embassy on that piece of paper that enabled them to flee. That's what saved thousands. When his hand couldn't do it anymore, his wife massaged it for him. His children brought the paper. He signed whatever he could, 24 hours a day, one visa after another. And my signature? 
for thousands of people, it destroyed, if not their life, then their plans. I never intended to abandon the limits of the law. I do believe that those limits make sense. And I'm paid to ensure that they're adhered to. During the car ride, I thought, I, I won't survive this. I'm doing what traffickers do. I'm smuggling a person across the border to Italy. Me, a judge, the guardian of justice and the laws. But when I looked in the rearview mirror and saw the woman sleeping soundly or gazing wide-eyed at the landscape we were driving through, it seemed harmless and just something people do all the time. They travel. The woman had been apprehended at Frankfurt Airport. No one knew where she was from. And she wasn't going to tell anyone. The only thing she wanted was to get her daughter in Rome. The normal process would have been to send her from the assembly camp to the home for asylum seekers, have her go through all the bureaucratic steps until she'd finally had ended up in the immigration center where people without papers are sent and where they often remain for years. If she got lucky because of her age, at some point she, she'd have been declared unfit for deportation. She'd have been tolerated without any rights to anything in a country she never wanted to live in. An old woman. What's the point of all this? Let her go to her daughter if that's all she wants. In Verona, I took the woman to the station. She bought herself a ticket, got into the train, and as it was slowly moving out and she waved at us from her seat by the window, I, I felt for the first time in ages, pride. Yes, I was proud of myself. I went into a bar and drank four whiskeys in one go. In 50 years, the way we're dealing with asylum seekers today will be considered a crime against humanity. We're doing it with our eyes wide open, with pens and clauses, with enforcement officers, and with some despicable tricks. We look away and they know what they need to do. One day, this will come before the human tribunal, and our children or grandchildren will be appalled, and we'll say, for our part, we didn't expressly sanction it. And if they continue to ask, what are we supposed to say then? That we were just doing our job? Once I returned, it was back to turning down applications. 64,000 applications are submitted in Germany, and only 2% are accepted. 2% out of thousands. You can figure out what my hand did all day. One day, my hand didn't want to do it anymore, or it couldn't. I had a lot of sleepless nights. 
until one day I requested a transfer, which of course was not a promotion. I still struggle with it. It's hard for me to break the law. And yet by now, I'm breaking it on a regular basis. You live, you work, you make sure you've got something to eat, you do what other people do, yet everything you do is illegal. As long as you don't have an identity card showing that you belong. You can't sit on a bench in the park. Without legal status, you can't book a hotel room. I'm committing an offense by being at my boyfriend's, and for him, it's aiding and abetting illegal immigration if he sleeps with me. Still, for me, there are worse things than not having legal status, like sitting in a home for asylum seekers doing nothing except watching life pass you by. The state is your opponent on a daily basis. But as human beings, we do possess rights, and they count for more than the laws of a nation state. But that's something you need to know, because the state is forgetful when it comes to human rights, but very meticulous when it comes to its own laws. You, the illegal person who aren't even supposed to exist, must point out the state's limits. You have to show it the legislation and insist that they're followed. Resolution 217A of the General Assembly of the United Nations, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, Article 1. All human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. They are endowed with reason and conscience and should act towards one another in a spirit of brotherhood. Article 9. No one shall be subjected to arbitrary arrest, detention, or exile. Article 23 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Everyone has the right to work. Article 23, Paragraph 2. Everyone has the right to equal pay for equal work and to accident insurance, sickness benefit, vacation, and days off. The illegal sector is the shadow world of the regular worlds of work and business. They live off us, the illegals. And just as we're dependent on them, so are they on us. You've had me work for you, but haven't paid me. We send you a letter from the lawyer, and then usually it gets worked out. The person who illegally employs me is also vulnerable. If it isn't worked out, we take it to court. I can take legal action, even without legal status. The labor judge isn't obliged to record it. If someone doesn't want to run that risk, they can be represented by a friend. We've sometimes had success that way, when at first it looked just about hopeless. We'd already exhausted the possibilities on the individual front. 
we had to admit to ourselves, politically, we're not going to get any further like this. We have to bring together political demands and support. We knew from conversations with people who, after the new asylum law came into effect, had moved in large numbers into the illegal realm, that the most important thing is medical care. For them, everything depends on that. If they go to see a doctor or into hospital, they get passed on to social services who say, this person is illegal. And so the law regarding foreigners kicks in. And they say, okay, once he's healthy again, out he goes. Fine. So let's build a structure that can be used by those who've been rendered illegal and try to find as many doctors and medical experts, midwives, physical therapists, etc., so we can make it possible for them to get treatment without proof of insurance. There are doctors who give all they can and are willing to do anything, but there are also hospitals that get involved. For childbirth, denominational hospitals are good. We get a birth for 240 euros. We, we get abortions somewhere else. They cost us 290 euros on average. We pay the bills with the money we get from donations. There are no regulations for what we're doing. It's a gray area. If the police come, we've got an alarm under the table. My life is good. I live in peace. The children have a roof over their heads. They go to school. They play soccer, go to dance class, self-defense, trumpet lessons. I can treat myself to an aperitif. Sit outside the cafe with people who have nothing to fear. Not a bomb, not being arrested, not prison, not torture. We've got our IDs with us, and we've got our rights, which are respected by the authorities who are responsible to us. And with the help of people in those offices who are paid to ensure that our rights are respected. Our right to be here is guaranteed. And so the sky can go on being blue, and spring can come and summer and vacation. And before that, the chestnut trees in bloom, and then relax the mood in the parks. That's just the life we lead. Not so easy all the time, but sometimes really nice. Suddenly, four young men run across the path. They jump into the bushes like they're madmen down the embankment to the pond, along the side of the pond to the road, and they're gone with the police right behind them. Everyone looks on in amusement at how they're straining themselves in their tight-fitting uniforms, panting after the athletic youngsters. The doors of the police vans fly open. Cops spread out in all directions. In a matter of seconds, Everything disappears as if swept away. No more reggae music from cell phones. 
no groups of young men in lively conversation. In no time at all, the park is empty. Empty, like Oranienplatz was after they cleared away the refugee camp there. One politician went so far as to say, we want to make every last one of them disappear. Less than two hours later, new turf had been put down over the square, making it look as if nothing had ever happened. After two years of dishes clattering at lunchtime and lights going on in their tents in the evening, a square full of people you could see, hear, observe. Now there's this shining green grass. Now they're patrolling there on an hourly basis. The park is under constant surveillance. It makes it like a ghost town. It's a strange way to live. I order a second aperitif as I watch them hunting the refugees. What happens if my country isn't humane and we stop having humane feelings and we don't even notice it, that we don't have those feelings anymore? In the 90s, when the racist attacks happened, Horsfeather, Lichtensfeather, Rostock, Solingen, and the attacks got more intense and life-threatening, at the same time, the right to asylum was being restricted. So we traveled there and asked, how can we support you? They just wanted to get away. So they came with us to Berlin. We occupied some rooms at the Technical University, got thrown out of there, got taken in by a church. Alongside that, there were negotiations going on with the city senate to have relocation to Berlin recognized as a second possible form of refuge. Those efforts were a miserable failure. The senate didn't engage with the idea at all. Then they made decisions individually. Some went back to Horsweather, others back home. Many of them went into hiding. The political situation was getting worse all the time. Politically, we lost again and again on all levels. Okay, if it's so difficult on the political level, then we'll have to consider the solutions we can find for individuals. There were brochures explaining how to carry out a marriage of convenience, how to present yourselves to the immigration office, how to prepare for inspection visits, how to conduct yourself when questioned separately. We then married three young Ghanaian men, Freddy, Samuel, and Nicholas. All three got indefinite residence permits after five years. And after seven, we got divorced. Of course, that didn't take care of everything. None of the three has found a better job. Freddy stayed in the kitchen where he was working before. Nicholas continued to be politically involved. Later on, he got beaten up by security guards in the subway in Frankfurt. That broke him for a long time. But Samuel's a DJ. That's what he always wanted to do. And now he's doing it. 
There is a little courtyard by the parsonage with a low wall round it. And I often stood there at night with the child in my arms under a magnificent sky, full of stars. The wall was the border. I thought, if they recognize anything, then it might be this little courtyard. Because the deportations always happen at night. They don't dare do it during the day. So at night, we have to protect them. Those nights were terrible. Every noise wakes you up. You start imagining things. You keep going over it. If they come, will you run for it? With a child? How do you deal with it when they do come and take them away? That's even happened when someone sought sanctuary in a church. What do you do then? You throw yourself into the situation, though you have to keep calm. It's not about you, after all. But the fear is something you feel also, even if it's not your own fear. Fear doesn't wear me down. It makes me furious. And on the basis of that fury, I take action and come up with strategies. But with a child? The starry sky was always so beautiful, and I often stood with the child in the courtyard. The little thing was never allowed out in daylight or in the sun. Everything that happened in her first year of life had to take place in that space. And then, at some point, as I was standing there with her, she said her first word, and it was moon because that was the only part of the world she could see and when we saw the moon that was when we went out under the starry sky I carried on I started keeping a really close eye on them because I'd noticed that the enforcement officers do plenty of stuff they're not allowed to. I look at the deportation orders, and if I see that they've violated existing law or human rights, then they can expect resistance. Legally, in the press, and also politically. I make it public. I write petitions. I contact the mayor. With this one young man with a wife and children who was supposed to be deported, when I pointed to the petition and to the fact that nobody can be deported so long as there's a petition for him underway, the deportation order was stopped. It was really easy. A few weeks later, we were able to secure the hardship provision for him and his family. In a public event uh, discussion, a woman got up and started to talk about her life and how for years she had been threatened with deportation voice kept failing. It stirred a lot up for her to speak in front of so many people. When she was finished, it was quiet for a moment. Then, an official from the immigration office, who I'd invited, behaved like he was moved and said, come and see me. I accompanied her to his office. When we entered the room, he had already couldn't remember her. Then he asked her her name. He entered it and then said, but weren't you deported? One week later, the verdict came. 
He must have initiated her deportation right after our conversation. I can't prove anything, and even if I could, it wouldn't help. The deportation was carried out. The Dublin II regulation replaced the 1990 Dublin Convention, which set the criteria for a country responsible for processing an asylum application. EU member states shall apply the regulation of Iceland, Switzerland, and Liechtenstein. The objective of this regulation is to identify as quickly as possible the member state responsible for examining an asylum application and to prevent abuse of asylum procedures. Council Regulation Number 343 Stroke 2003 of the 18th of February 2003 establishing the criteria and mechanisms for determining the member state responsible for examining an asylum application lodged in one of the member states by a third country national summary. This regulation establishes the principle that only one member state is responsible for examining an asylum application. The objective is to avoid asylum seekers from being sent from one country to another and also to prevent abuse of the system by the submission of several applications for asylum by one person. The objective and hierarchical criteria are therefore defined in order to identify the member state responsible for each asylum application. The asylum seeker is in possession of a valid residence document with visa. The member state that issued it will be responsible for examining the asylum application. The asylum seeker has irregularly crossed the border into a member state. That member state will be responsible for examining the asylum application. This responsibility ceases 12 months after the date on which the border has been illegally crossed. When the asylum seeker has been living for a continuous period of at least five months in a member state before lodging his This production of Illegal Helpers was directed by Katrin Redfern. Asa Wimber designed and mixed the audio. The cast featured J.J. Condone, Robert DeFelice, Guinevere Donahue, Mariam Habib, Asta Hansen, Wayne Moggins, Joe Primavera, Francisco Solorzano, Harold Tarr, and Pauline Walsh. Play for Voices is produced by Matt Fiddler, Ann Poston, Katrin Redfern, and Jen Zobel. Please subscribe for more audio drama from around the world. And thanks for listening.